0: Well, hello, hello, it's Stuart Haynes here and welcome to the iFormRx podcast where we explore the evidence that informs ambulatory care pharmacy practice. Our goal is to help keep you informed so that you can provide the best possible care to your patients. So if you haven't joined iFormRx already, I encourage you to sign up today by visiting iFormRx.org. It's free to all health professionals and students studying to become a health professional. So our guests today are Dr. Timothy Gladwell and Dr. Scott Baker. Tim reached out to me a couple of months ago and suggested that we review the CHAP or the Chronic Hypertension and Pregnancy Trial, which was published in the May 12th issue 2022 of the New England Journal of Medicine. Now, while the treatment of so-called mild hypertension during pregnancy has been generally recommended for many years, the, the evidence to support these recommendations has actually been lacking. Until recently, we really didn't know if treating blood pressures greater than 140 over 90, but less than 160 over 100, produce clinically important benefits for either the mother or the child. And I think most of us, and including most moms, are pretty reluctant to use drug therapies during pregnancy unless the benefits clearly outweigh the risks. So the CHAP trial is truly a landmark study because it provides us clear, or at least clearer, evidence about whether or not to treat mild hypertension during pregnancy. Doctor. Gladwell is an associate professor and associate dean for academic affairs and assessment at the University of Maryland Eastern Shore and has a strong interest in not only cardiology but all things related to evidence based practice. And Scott Baker is a clinical pharmacist and pharmacotherapy specialist who practices at Tidal Health Peninsula Regional Medical Center in bucolic Salisbury, Maryland. So, Tim, Scott, it's great to have you both on the iForumRx podcast today.
1: Thank you for the invitation, Stuart. It's great to be back with you on iForumRx.
2: Thanks for having me on, Stuart.
0: So, Tim, I'd like to start out by setting some context for this study. We know that hypertension is an important risk factor for many cardiovascular events, particularly stroke and myocardial infarction, and of course, increases the risk of heart failure and chronic kidney disease. And we also know that aggressively treating high blood pressure in men and women who are not pregnant improves outcomes. But treating elevated blood pressures during pregnancy is a bit more controversial, in part because we've lacked clear evidence that it's beneficial in terms of maternal and fetal outcomes. We know that elevated blood pressures during pregnancy, you know, isn't good. But that doesn't necessarily mean treating it with drugs is more helpful than harmful. So what are the potential adverse consequences of high blood pressure during pregnancy? And what do the guidelines and most experts recommend? Yeah, this is such an important concept, Stuart. And I think a lot of
1: clinicians, myself included, have at one time or another fallen into this trap of looking at pregnancy as just a short-term condition. So we may rationalize that there are unlikely to be significant consequences from having an elevated blood pressure we usually think of target organ damage and major adverse cardiovascular events as being something that are long-term sequelae of hypertension. Unfortunately, the data really doesn't bear that out as we now have clear evidence that that there are both short and long-term consequences for both the mother and the baby. For the mother... Elevated blood pressure during pregnancy is associated with a significant increase for in-hospital myocardial infarction, stroke, peripartum cardiomyopathy, and arrhythmias, which when you take those all together, that helps explain why hypertensive disorders during pregnancy are the second leading cause of maternal pregnancy-related deaths worldwide. And in the long term, women with a hypertension disorder during pregnancy develop chronic hypertension and cardiovascular events earlier and more often than women who are normotensive during pregnancy. And we can't forget there are also significant consequences for the baby. Hypertensive disorders during pregnancy are associated with an increased risk of stillbirth, preterm delivery, and low birth weights. Um, Prior to the publication of the CHAP study that we're going to be discussing in just a couple minutes, there are recommendations from multiple different international guidelines on how to manage hypertension during pregnancy. And they all had some variations, but there are a few things that they all pretty much generally agreed on. The first is that blood pressure needs to be routinely monitored throughout pregnancy to try to detect a hypertensive disorder as early as possible. Also, they generally recommend diagnosing hypertension using a cutoff blood pressure greater than 140 over 90 from in-office measurements, primarily because of a lack of data on the use of -of out-of-office measurements and data on lower blood pressure cutoff levels in pregnant patients. Uh, They also recognize that hypertensive disorders of pregnancy do not represent a single unique disorder. There are a constellation of different syndromes associated with hypertension during pregnancy. So we have chronic hypertension, which is pre-existing hypertension or new hypertension developing before 20 weeks of gestation. We have gestational hypertension, which is new hypertension that occurs on or after 20 weeks of gestation. And we have preeclampsia which is hypertension occurring after 20 weeks in association with proteinuria or other end organ effects. The one thing that all of the guidelines recommend is that if the blood pressure is severely elevated, generally considered to be a systolic blood pressure greater than 160 or a diastolic greater than 110, that those patients should be treated with drug therapy. Uh, The primary point of contention is what do we do with the patients who have the mildly elevated blood pressures, the systolic between 140 to 160, or the diastolic between 90 to 110? And that's primarily because of disagreements from lack of clear benefits. For example, the Canadian and United Kingdom guidelines recommend that those patients with mildly elevated blood pressure should be treated with drugs when the blood pressure is persistently above 140 over 90. On the other hand, U.S. guidelines, which are primarily the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists, or ACOG guidelines, recommend withholding drug treatment until the blood pressure is above 160 over 110. So that's where the CHAP study is really going to help us to figure out what should we do with these guidelines where there is disagreement for
0: management of mild hypertension during pregnancy. So Scott, let's let's talk about the CHAP study. As I said, the, the study was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in May, 2022, and we provide a link to the paper on our website, but can you give us a brief summary of the study methods and the key findings?
2: So essentially the authors were setting out to bolster the evidence specifically chronic mild hypertension pregnancy patients, falling somewhere in the 140 to 160 range. To accomplish this, they set up a multi-center randomized control trial that was around about 60 centers in the U.S. I will mention that it was not blinded, so it was an open label trial. They looked at mothers who were before 23 weeks gestation, and they could either be newly diagnosed with hypertension at pregnancy, or they could already have chronic mild hypertension being treated before they were pregnant. A couple notable exclusions were any pregnant patients who required two or more antihypertensives to manage their hypertension prior to enrollment. They also excluded anyone with severe hypertension, which, as Tim mentioned, was deemed above 160 systolic or above 105 diastolic. After they screened patients, they ended up with roughly 2,400 patients Diverse population, pretty decent distribution of both uh, black and white and Hispanic patients. They were randomized one-to-one to either active treatment with an antihypertensive with a goal blood pressure of less than 140 systolic and less than 90 diastolic, or a control group who did not receive any active treatment. I will mention also that this control group included patients who were previously on antihypertensive therapy before the study. If they fell into that group and they ended up in the control group, then that therapy was stopped at the start of the trial. That's not to say that the control group patients didn't receive any antihypertensive therapy. If they did experience any severe blood pressure, they were allowed to be started on antihypertensives. Specifically looking at the antihypertensive treatments that they utilized in the study, the majority of patients either received labetalol at about 62% of patients or extended release nephetapine, which was about 36% of patients. They started patients on monotherapy. They would then max this out to the maximally tolerated dose for the patient, and they also allowed patients to add a second agent if needed. They tracked adherence in the trial with pill counts and patient interviewing, and they followed patients up to six weeks postpartum. The primary outcome was a composite of the following. They looked at preterm birth rates, which had to be caused by either fetal or maternal complications, severe preeclampsia, placental abruption, and fetal or neonatal death. The primary safety outcome for the study they assessed was poor fetal growth, which they classified as a baby falling into the bottom 10% of weight for gestational age. So they saw a lower rate of the primary composite events in the treatment group, and this was primarily driven by the subcategories of severe preeclampsia and medically indicated preterm delivery. For the safety outcome, there was no clinically significant difference on fetal growth
0: between the two groups. So there, there are several features of the study that I, I think make this among the most rigorous trials ever conducted in pregnant women. But, but this was an open label study, which I think we can all agree increases the risk of bias because both the patients and their caregivers were not blinded to their treatment assignment. What, if anything, did the investigators do to mitigate this potential source of bias, and are there any other sources of bias or potential confounders that we need to consider when evaluating the validity of this study and its applications to our patients? That's a great point, Stuart. Um, This was a pragmatic study. It was
1: designed to test the benefits of an approach to blood pressure management rather than examining the effects of a particular medication on the blood pressure control. And this is similar to the design of the SPRINT trial and some other landmark hypertension studies, which tested different target blood pressure levels in non-pregnant adults with hypertension. The choice of medications in this study was left up to the discretion of the investigator and the patient. So it would be difficult logistically to implement a matching placebo. However, we have to take into account when reviewing the study that there could be potential bias and what did the investigators actually do to try to mitigate that risk. So one of the things that the investigators did was to use an independent data and safety monitoring board who maintained close oversight of the study. Separately, they also incorporated the use of centralized blinding adjudication to confirm the major outcomes for the study. Now, this study also had some other strengths, including the use of standardized methods and automated blood pressure monitoring machines to actually get uh, the blood pressure measurements for the patients. As Scott mentioned earlier, they did include a very large and diverse patient population. They also used clinically relevant outcome measures that are important for patients and clinicians, and they had excellent follow-up and adherence to the protocol. But at the same time, there are some other potential limitations that we need to consider. The first is investigators enrolled less than 10% of the entire screened population, which may affect the generalizability of the results. Also, less than 50% of patients were taking low dose aspirin at randomization. And current recommendations are for any uh, patient who is high risk for preeclampsia, which would include any pregnant patient with chronic hypertension, those patients are recommended to take low dose daily aspirin to try to reduce the risk of complications. The outcomes were only monitored for up to six weeks after delivery during this study, and that precludes any comparison on long-term benefits that the different uh, treatment approaches may have. And it's also important to keep in mind that the investigators in this study were clinically trained OBGYNs, so the effects may not necessarily
0: translate to our day-to-day practices. So what are the practical implications of this study? Does the study provide us with clear enough evidence to support treating mild hypertension during pregnancy? Does it suggest that one treatment, nifedipine, for example, or labetalol is better than another? Will this study likely lead to changes in clinical practice guidelines?
2: I think it certainly does, Stuart. Uh, The term landmark trial has. Been used a couple of times here, and I would certainly agree. And as with most landmark trials, I would expect this to change practice significantly. I believe ACOG has already released a reactionary statement to this trial. Um, really, looking at the evidence, you know, the mantra of first do no harm has always been present, but I feel like, you know, with this population of pregnant patients, it, it really comes to the forefront when you're making medical decisions. You know, I think because of that in the past, given the lack of evidence prior to this trial, you know, people were very hesitant to start therapies in this kind of middle ground, mild chronic hypertension. But now with this evidence, I think you could argue that the essentially be doing harm by not treating it or not doing anything.
1: Um, obviously, every patient must be approached individually. But in, in general, this trial does show strong evidence to support the use of routine treatment with drug therapy. When there are even mild elevations of blood pressure during pregnancy. So, if you have a patient with pre existing hypertension who is planning to become pregnant or has become pregnant, assuming they were well controlled on their drugs before pregnancy, this uh, trial should provide evidence that they should continue to take their same medications during pregnancy unless that medication is contraindicated such as an ACE inhibitor or an ARB. If you have a patient who did not have pre-existing hypertension, but they develop hypertension during pregnancy, when the blood pressure goes above 140 over 90, antihypertensive agents should be implemented with the goal to reduce the blood pressure to below 140 over 90. And according to our current ACOG guidelines, first line agents would include labetalol or nifedipine, and second line agents include hydrochlorothiazide or methyl dopa. We should always keep in mind that it's important to educate patients about their drug therapy, including importance of adherence and regular follow-up, but of course non-pharmacological interventions such as nutritional counseling, physical activity, maintaining a healthy weight, abstaining from tobacco and alcohol should also be stressed to reduce the risk of complications and recommending the the use of other guideline-directed therapies
0: such as aspirin for patients who are high risk for preeclampsia. Scott, Tim. Thank you so much for participating in the iFormerX podcast today and reviewing the CHAP trial and its implications in practice. And I think it's clear from your comments that mild hypertension should be treated and we should be using either extended-release nithetapine or labetalol, or if a patient's using an existing therapy before pregnancy to continue that therapy unless it's contraindicated. But mild hypertension bottom line, should be treated in pregnancy. Well, tell us what you think. As an iFormerX member, you can leave comments by visiting and logging into iFormerX.org, our website. For those of you who are board-certified ambulatory care pharmacists like Dr. Gladwell and me, you can earn board recertification and continuing education credit by listening to this podcast and then reading the written commentary posted on our website. We've partnered with the American Pharmacists Association to produce their evidence-based practice literature evaluation series, which is available online, on demand, anytime, and from any computer with internet access. You can learn more about the APHA board prep and recertification program by clicking on that link that we've posted below the written commentary on our website. And lastly, I want to thank Laura McAuliffe from Lifespan Rhode Island Hospital for reaching out to me last year and asking me how she and her residents can get more involved with X Laura is the Residency Program Director for the PGY-2 Ambulatory Care Residency Program. And this past year, she and several of the Lifespan Pharmacy preceptors and each of the PGY-2 residents authored a commentary and participated in a podcast. Laura recently joined our advisory board and and I'm really looking forward to her input as to how we can improve iFormerX, our website, and the content we offer. Laura and her team are doing amazing things in Rhode Island. So if you're a PGY-1 resident looking for a great ambulatory care residency program, check out Lifespan Rhode Island Hospital. And until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, Editor-in-Chief of iFormerX, signing off. Be safe, my friends.